You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler, and today I've got something different for you. We will be back with a special Halloween episode next week, but in the meantime, I would like to let you in on another podcast I think you'll enjoy. It's called History Daily, and it does precisely what it says on the tin. Every weekday, host Lindsey Graham of American Scandal and American History Tellers, not the other Lindsey Graham, takes you back in time to explore a momentous event that happened on that day in history. Every episode is well-researched, fully scripted, and meticulously produced in a way that, frankly, makes me quite jealous. And they're concise, just 20 or so minutes long, perfect for when you're bored at work, doing dishes, stuck in traffic, or all those podcasty places. There is a decent chance that you already listen to History Daily, not only because it is one of the most popular and highest-rated history podcasts in the world, but because Lindsay and the good folks at Airship were generous enough to feature The Constant a couple weeks back, and a whole bunch of fresh people discovered this show because of them. Which means, if you're a supporter of this show, you are under a moral obligation to check out History Daily. These kinds of swaps and cross-promotions are one of the very few dependable ways to help listeners find shows they'll enjoy and to help shows grow the way they need to to survive. History Daily produces so much content and such great content that I had an absolute embarrassment of riches to choose from to sample for you today. What I've ended up with is two stories about medical history that, as a listener to this show, I know you'll love. So sit back. Take a listen, and if you like what you hear, go check out History Daily wherever you listen to this and the other podcasts you love. It's early March 1918 in Fort Riley, a U.S. Army training facility in Kansas. Inside the mess hall, the company cook, Private Albert Gitchell, ladles beef stew onto a metal tray. His movements are mechanical, born of countless repetition, as he adds a second dollop of watery brown sludge onto the tray and slides it to a waiting soldier. Gitchell wipes sweat from his brow with the back of his hand. But just as he's about to call out next, he feels a slight tickle in his throat. A cough rises, but soon he's hacking. Then another man appears at the counter, Camp's notoriously ill-tempered drill sergeant. Gitchell stifles his cough and lowers his gaze, careful to avoid provoking the ire of the grumpy sergeant. Gitchell ladles two scoops of stew onto his tray. 
but as he passes it back, the tray falls from his hand and crashes to the floor. Gitchell stares at his trembling hand, confused. Then his vision blurs, and there's a burning sensation in his skull. He looks up at the drill sergeant, whose boots are now splattered with gravy. The sergeant hisses, What the hell's wrong with you, Gitchell? Gitchell tries to mumble an apology, but the sergeant just stares at him, his expression turning from one of rage to one of concern. The sergeant barks, You look awful, Gitchell. Go get some sleep. The next morning, on March 11th, Gitchell wakes inside his barracks, racked with a terrible cough, a splitting headache, and violent chills. Struggling to breathe, he staggers to the infirmary, where a nurse takes his temperature. He's running a fever of 103 degrees. The nurse ushers Gitchell into a special wing reserved for contagious diseases. As he sits on a cot, he struggles to breathe, his face turning blue. The nurse asks if he's been in close contact with anybody else. Between short, rattling breaths, Gitchell tells her he's the mess cook. He's been in contact with everybody. By noon, every bed in the infirmary will be occupied by men plagued with coughs, fevers, and body aches. By the end of the month, over 1,000 soldiers from Fort Riley will have contracted the mysterious illness. The nurses don't recognize the symptoms. They assume it's a virulent form of pneumonia, perhaps aggravated by the noxious yellow ash cloud that hangs over the camp, a byproduct of pig manure being burned nearby. But it's not pneumonia. Private Albert Gitchell has become the first known victim of a new, highly contagious disease, the result of a mutation of the influenza virus carried by swine. This disease will spread rapidly through America and then the world, bringing suffering and death to millions, starting with the first reported case discovered on a military base in Kansas on March 11, 1918. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is March 11th, the first reported case of the Spanish flu. It's May 1918, two months after the flu outbreak at Fort Riley. A transport ship carrying American soldiers to Europe cuts through the Atlantic Ocean. Inside the cabin, a soldier from the 89th Infantry Division rolls over in his bunk and faces the wall. The ship is cramped and uncomfortable, and the rough ocean makes the young private seasick. He shivers and shuts his eyes. World War I has been raging on the Western Front for four years, but Great Britain and her allies are about to gain a crucial advantage, America's military might. When German submarines began sinking U.S. merchant ships in the Atlantic, President Woodrow Wilson decided to respond. He declared war on Germany, and by the following spring, 200,000 U.S. soldiers were being shipped to the battlefields of Western Europe. Aware of the incoming American troops, Germany launched its spring offensive, a last-ditch effort to push back the Allied advance before the U.S. divisions arrive and tip the balance of the war. But unbeknownst to both the Germans and the Allies, these transport ships from America are carrying a much deadlier weapon than mere artillery. By the time the ship docks in France, the American private seasickness 
has turned into a nasty head cold. He spends the journey to the front line, convulsed in coughing fits and racked with shuddering chills, the same symptoms exhibited by the men at Fort Riley. And when he arrives at the trenches of the front lines, he finds them infested by rats and lice. When it rains, men are forced to wade through knee-deep rivers of mud. The dreadful conditions weaken the soldiers' immune systems. Before long, many of them start complaining of sore throats and raging fevers. Red Cross medics can't identify the cause of these symptoms, so they call the malady Flanders Grip, named after the area of Belgium in which they're fighting. For the soldiers, the disease is just another grim reality of the war, right alongside the guns and poison gas. But as the Allies approach victory on the Western Front, Flanders' grip will spread across Europe and beyond, becoming more deadly as it mutates until the virus which causes the disease sets off a global pandemic. It's June 1918, three months after the outbreak at Fort Riley. 5,000 miles away from the Western Front, a ship carrying wounded Indian soldiers docks in the port of Bombay, in 1918, India is still part of the British Empire, and these men belong to the colonial Indian Army. Most are infantry privates, known as sepoy, who were injured in the trenches of France before being sent home on the ship. But in addition to their injuries, these sepoy are carrying an invisible threat, a deadly virus which they caught in the trenches and which will soon sweep across the country. Within days of the ship's arrival, the first cases of the mysterious virus are recorded in Bombay. It's a densely populated city, and the virus quickly spreads. Here, it becomes known as Bombay Fever, and it decimates the populace. By fall, nearly 800 people die from the disease every day. And similar scenes are unfolding around the world. In the bustling West African port city of Freetown, Sierra Leone, the contagion arrives on the merchant vessels carrying goods to and from the British front lines. 4% of Freetown's population are dead within three weeks. Meanwhile, halfway across the world in Australia, returning troops complain of dry, rasping coughs and persistent fevers. The virus goes on to affect around 40% of the Australian population and kills at least 12,000 people. From Japan to Brazil to Finland, no corner of the globe remains uninfected. In the United Kingdom, the virus arrives via Glasgow's shipyards and quickly spreads. Pamphlets and posters are distributed, advising people to avoid shaking hands and refrain from spitting. In London, city buses are fumigated, and surgical face masks are distributed among factory and office workers. Local councils advise victims to self-isolate and to gargle salt water and potassium carbonate. If that doesn't work, some suggest raw onions and whiskey. Even smoking cigarettes is encouraged to kill germs in the lungs. But unsurprisingly, these remedies do nothing to stop people from dropping dead in the streets. By the end of the pandemic, 250,000 British people will have died. But with World War I still raging, press censorship restricts news stories about the public health emergency. The governments of Britain, France, and the United States know they're on the verge of victory. They don't want to weaken national morale at such a critical juncture. So most of the initial reports about the virus emerged from one of the few European countries that remained neutral during the war, Spain. It's how the disease gets its name, the Spanish flu. More than 100,000 people living in Spain will die from the disease in 1918 alone. But then a second wave of the pandemic hits in the fall, and the symptoms intensify and the death tolls rise. Experts around the world begin to urge their governments to implement stricter precautions, but many public officials downplay the danger 
and dismiss public health warnings as needless fear-mongering. In one city in the United States, this careless attitude will have devastating and deadly consequences. When you're hiring, you're supposed to leave no stone unturned, but how do you actually do that? Easy, partner with one powerful stone turner. You need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. The virtual interview feature is a great time saver. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Most employers said it saved them days of hiring time, according to Indeed Data US. Join over 3 million businesses worldwide using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Indeed knows when you're growing your own business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit Indeed.com slash The Constant to start hiring now. Just go to Indeed.com slash The Constant. Indeed.com slash The Constant. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's September 28, 1918, six months after the Spanish flu first appeared. The sun shines brightly over Philadelphia, where a large parade is underway. City officials organize this event to promote the government's Liberty Loans Initiative, a fundraising campaign designed to sell bonds and raise money for the war effort. Prior to the parade, Philadelphia's public health director, Dr. Wilmer Cruzen, expressed concern about a new virus sweeping the country. After the initial outbreak at Fort Riley, Spanish flu died down in the U.S., but by late September, cases are on the rise again as more and more soldiers return from the Western Front. Ten days ago, a British merchant ship docked in the Navy Yard here in Philadelphia. Days later, 600 sailors fell ill. Dr. Cruzen faced a tough decision. Advise city officials to cancel the parade or risk spreading the virus. But Dr. Cruzen knows how important the parade is. It will boost morale and encourage the purchase of war-financing bonds. So he didn't put up much of a fight. And this will prove a calamitous mistake. Today, some 200,000 Philadelphians throng the sidewalks, waving and cheering as marching bands and colorful floats parade down Broad Street. But in the midst of this jubilation, the contagion races through the crowds and across the city. In less than two weeks, more than 4,500 Philadelphians are killed by the virus. The city shuts down completely, Schools and public venues are closed. Volunteers dig mass graves. Church bells ring out in mourning. Philadelphia's death toll is the highest in the country, with over 17,000 dead by the time the pandemic ends in 1919. But no place in America is spared. Los Angeles, New York, Pittsburgh, Denver. All across the country, public health officials scramble to curb the spread of the Spanish flu, frequently butting heads with people who want to downplay the severity of the virus. In the midst of this perilous moment, 
one public health official will emerge as the most strident voice of caution, but his decision to speak out will cost him. It's early October 1918 in Seattle, Washington. A slight, bespectacled man waits patiently outside the mayor's office, his hands folded in his lap. Soon, a secretary pokes her head around the door and says, Mayor Hansen is ready for you, doctor. The man is Dr. Thomas Tuttle, the public health commissioner for the state of Washington. Despite his own owlish appearance and shy demeanor, Tuttle is a somewhat controversial figure. During the smallpox epidemic of the early 1900s, he drew criticism for recommending mandatory vaccinations, and he issued a sharp rebuke against those who refused to vaccinate, or as Dr. Tuttle called them, anti-vaccinationists. By October 1918, Spanish flu cases are rising dramatically in Washington. And unlike Wilmer Cruzen in Philadelphia, Dr. Tuttle is taking decisive action. That's why he's here to see Seattle's mayor, Ole Hansen. In their meeting, Tuttle advises the mayor to close churches and all public spaces and to issue fines for spitting and for not wearing face masks on streetcars. Mayor Hansen knows the measures will be unpopular, but he listens to the doctor, is persuaded by the science, and puts preventative measures in place. Meanwhile, Dr. Tuttle takes this case to the press. In various publications, he reminds the people of Washington State that the virus will only be curbed with the earnest, conscientious, and intelligent help of every citizen of the state. And for a while, Tuttle's efforts pay off. Washington maintains a relatively low rate of infection. But Dr. Tuttle's measures are not universally popular. Many in the state ignore his advice. Blasé attitudes are fueled by the position taken by the United States Federal Health Service, which consistently reassures the public that there is no cause for alarm. In Chicago, the director of public health echoes these sentiments, stating that worry kills more people than the disease. But this is far from the truth. Dr. Tuttle knows it. In December 1918, with cases on the rise, Tuttle travels to Chicago to attend the National Conference of the American Public Health Association. There, he rails against the short-sightedness and intransigence of many of his peers and urges stricter enforcement of regulations. Tuttle's words of warning further alienate him from the powers that be in Washington state. In early 1919, he's fired from his position as health commissioner on the basis of his supposedly hard-line views. Suddenly, without occupation, he will move to Kansas, where he will take up a new role there on the State Board of Health. Meanwhile, all around the world, doctors remain perplexed by the Spanish flu's origins and struggle to produce a successful vaccine. But of its own accord, the virus will become less deadly as it evolves, until eventually, by 1921, fatality rates will return to pre-pandemic levels. But by this time, the virus has killed between 50 and 100 million people worldwide. Despite his accomplishments, Dr. Tuttle will never understand the epidemiology of the Spanish flu. In one report, he writes, It is very probable we will meet our next epidemic with as little knowledge of the true nature of the disease as we had in the fall of 1918. Still, Dr. Tuttle's hard work will not be in vain. His approach to public health guidelines will inform and inspire public policy over 100 years later when the world finds itself in the grips of another deadly pandemic. It's January 29th, 2020, 102 years since the outbreak of the Spanish flu. 
a slight, bespectacled doctor stands behind a lectern at a medical conference in Arlington, Virginia. Projected on a screen behind him is the title of his lecture, Coronavirus Infection, More Than Just a Common Cold. The doctor is discussing the recent emergence in China of a novel strain of the coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, and the respiratory disease the virus causes, COVID-19. The disease has not yet spread from China, but when it does, the world must be ready. The doctor's voice is solemn, but measured. He has spent his career studying the preventative measures required to control global pandemics. He knows how difficult it can be to clearly communicate the urgency of caution to a disbelieving public. In 2009, he and a group of other medical researchers published a study entitled An Historical Antecedent of Community Pandemic Flu Mitigation. The report discussed the H1N1 strain of the influenza virus that killed 5% of the world's population between 1918 and 1921, better known as the Spanish flu. The report cited critical health guidelines, including social distancing, the closure of schools and public spaces, and the use of face masks, all measures implemented by the Commissioner of Public Health in Washington at the time, Dr. Thomas Tuttle. Now, as Dr. Anthony Fauci delivers his first public address on COVID-19, he thinks about those first measures recommended by Tuttle in 1918. And soon, Dr. Fauci and other public health advisors across the globe will set out to implement very similar measures to curb this newest pandemic. The Spanish flu was the deadliest natural disaster of the 20th century. More people died from the virus than during the four years of World War I. And just like today, the true heroes were the nurses, doctors, and frontline workers who risked their lives for the good of the community. And thanks to measures bravely implemented by the likes of Dr. Thomas Tuttle, Today's public officials are better equipped to handle public health emergencies as they strive to learn from the mistakes made during the Spanish flu outbreak, which started on March 11th, 1918. Next on History Daily, March 14th, 1964, in the first courtroom verdict to be televised in the U.S., Jack Ruby is found guilty of the murder of Lee Harvey Oswald, assassin of President John F. Kennedy. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily. Hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing and sound design by Molly Bond. Music by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by Joe Viner. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Noiser. What I want most out of my phone is for it to never make any sound ever again. Well, aside from that one, because that is the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether your thing is vintage teas or recipes for ghee, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of your favorite businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll create an online store in your vibe, discover new customers, and grow the following that keeps them coming back. Shopify has all the sales channels sorted so your business keeps growing, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free libraries full of educational content, Shopify has got you every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify, and you will too. 
Shopify makes selling simple, so you can put yourself and your ideas out there. Whether your thing is making ebooks or earrings, Shopify makes your success possible. Go on, try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. This is possibility powered by Shopify. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash the constant, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash the constant to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash the constant. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. You know the feeling. You've got a plan, everything's working, and then bump, bump, stuff goes off the rails. And rather than fix the problem, you fix eight on it instead. It can be tough to train your brain to stay in problem-solving mode when faced with a challenge in life. But when you learn how to find your own solutions, there is no better feeling. A therapist can help you become a better problem solver, making it easier to accomplish your goals no matter how big or small. I'm a big believer in therapy. It's a great tool not just for tackling the problems you know, but also for identifying the Rumsfeldian problems you don't know you don't know. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, affordable, and entirely online. Get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey and switch therapists anytime. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash the constant today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash the constant. It's July 8, 1921, at the Baltimore Hotel in downtown Kansas City, Missouri. Outside, a large crowd jeers and hisses as a public health officer from New York makes his way through a mass of people. Back in May, the mayor's office hired Dr. Charles North to help sanitize Kansas City's dairy industry after a batch of contaminated milk caused widespread disease. Dr. North is a fierce advocate of a relatively new bacteria-killing process known as pasteurization but he's been met with fierce opposition from dairy farmers here in Missouri who believe pasteurization is a waste of time and money. Dr. North bounds up the front steps of the hotel, and inside, a gaggle of reporters is waiting for him. One photographer steps forward and says, smile for the Kansas City star. With the camera flash still burning in his eyes, Dr. North blinks, looking around the lobby, and there, standing in the middle of the room, is a cow. A reporter approaches Dr. North hands him a bucket and says, let's see if you really are America's leading authority on milk. Dr. North approaches the cow and becomes acutely aware of the dairy farmers crowding the lobby, their narrow eyes boring into him as he gingerly takes a seat at the milking stool. Dr. North removes his jacket and rolls up his sleeves. He knows that if these people are ever going to take him seriously, if they're ever going to listen to his recommendations and implement mandatory pasteurization, he's going to have to earn their respect he's going to have to milk this cow. <clears throat> Dr. North clears his throat. He throws an apologetic glance at the animal. And then with trembling fingers, he takes hold of an udder and starts to pull. But nothing comes out. As hostile murmurs ripple through the lobby, a droplet of sweat trickles down Dr. North's brow. Growing desperate, he takes hold of a different udder and muttering a silent prayer, gives it a firm yank. To Dr. North's overwhelming delight, a thimbleful of milk dribbles from the udder and lands in the bucket at his feet. He continues pulling, producing a couple of more thimblefuls before standing triumphantly and turning to face the crowd. 
In the early 20th century, America was at war over milk. Health officials like Dr. Charles North found themselves locking horns with dairy farmers over controversial new food standard requirements as they sought to prevent disease through regulations on milk production. This battle raged in towns and cities all across the country. But the conflict between science and skepticism actually started decades earlier in a laboratory in Paris where a scientist named Louis Pasteur invented the process that would one day bear his name on April 20th, 1862. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is April 20th. Louis Pasteur invents pasteurization. It's May 22, 1858, in Manhattan, four years before Louis Pasteur makes his greatest discovery. A man named Frank Leslie sits behind his desk reading a newspaper. Frank is the founder and editor of Frank Leslie's Illustrated Newspaper, a weekly current affairs magazine. Today, his paper has published a special report, one Frank has been working on for months. The report begins... For the midnight assassin, we have the rope and the gallows. But for those who murder our children by the thousands, we have neither reprobation nor punishment. They are not penal villains, but licensed traitors. And though their traffic is in human life, the government seems powerless or unwilling to interfere. Frank nods approvingly, his eyes ablaze with emotion. He hopes that with the publication of this report, the people of his city will finally see reason. Because last year... Nearly 8,000 children in New York died from a mysterious sickness. Doctors were perplexed. Until the New York Academy of Medicine carried out a series of tests and traced the roots of the sickness back to one culprit, milk. Specifically, a new product being peddled by dairies across the city, a cheaper and more nutritious alternative to ordinary milk, perfect for children and adults alike. The product is called Pure Country Milk, and it's been a resounding commercial success, comprising between 50 and 80% of the milk consumed by New Yorkers. But this milk is deadly. In the early 1850s, children started suffering from uncontrollable diarrhea. Doctors put it down to diphtheria or tuberculosis, failing to make the connection between pure country milk and child mortality, which seemed to be growing year on year. Then one morning in 1858, Frank Leslie, editor of Frank Leslie's illustrated newspaper, noticed that his milk had an unusually thick consistency. On closer inspection, Frank discovered it was filled with blood and pus. This wasn't just spoiled milk. This was something worse. So Frank sent his reporters to inspect the so-called dairies where the pure country milk was coming from. Their discoveries were shocking. Pure country milk was a devious piece of misbranding. The name given to the contaminated milk produced by malnourished, diseased cows. These sick cows had largely been fed the byproduct of whiskey distillation, a substance known as swill. As New York City expanded during the 1800s, it became impossible to operate dairy farms in urban areas. There was no room left for cows to graze in the city, so milk vendors were forced to transport their product into the city from rural farms upstate. But this proved problematic. Milk would spoil in overheated rail cars, and vendors soon realized they needed to find an alternative solution. In the end, it was provided by an unlikely source, distilleries. 
opportunistic distillery owners capitalizing on the lack of pasture land in New York decided to make use of the waste byproduct from their distillation facilities. It was an ingenious scheme. Cows fed on swill produced 25% more milk than grass-fed cows. They didn't need pastures to graze on and could be kept in large, windowless milking sheds where the grain sludge was piped into feeding troughs. Vendors were making a fortune, but there were some drawbacks. Swill lacks nutrients, and as a result, the cows grew sick. They developed stomach ulcers, and their tails fell off. Too diseased to stand, these scrawny animals were held up by slings, and the milk they produced was thin, watery, and bluish in color. So the enterprising vendors used thickening agents, such as chalk, flour, and plaster of Paris. All the while, babies in New York were dying by the thousands, and nobody was making the connection between swill milk and infant mortality. Until, in 1858, when Frank Leslie publishes his scathing report. The 5,000-word expose is accompanied by illustrations depicting the Grim Reaper serving milk to needy children. New York's distilleries are labeled milk murderers and accused of distributing liquid poison. Frank even provides maps detailing the precise locations of the guilty distilleries. Frank's campaign has an immediate effect. Angry mobs gather outside the distilleries, demanding to inspect the premises. Bowing to public pressure, the city council agrees to send a team of aldermen to carry out a formal inspection. But it soon becomes clear that local politicians are in cahoots with the distilleries and profiting from the swill milk racket themselves. In late 1858, a committee of city officials votes in favor of keeping the distilleries open. Frank is enraged by the city council's inaction. He publishes more scathing articles and illustrations. He takes out ads in rival newspapers with the line, Are you aware what kind of milk you are drinking? And soon, sales of pure country milk plummet. The New York Academy of Medicine carries out tests, proving the link between swill milk and infant mortality. Eventually, in 1862, unable to ignore the public outcry any longer, the New York State Legislature bans the sale of swill milk. Frank Leslie has triumphed in his campaign to illegalize swill milk, but there's about to be another breakthrough. Because at this very moment, thousands of miles away in Europe, a scientist named Louis Pasteur is about to make a discovery that will revolutionize milk consumption and save countless lives. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. 
I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. It's April 20th, 1862 in Paris. A 40-year-old French scientist is stooped over a microscope in his laboratory. A clock on the wall shows how late the hour is. But the scientist doesn't care. He believes he's on the verge of a major breakthrough. Louis Pasteur is working on his theory of fermentation. At this time in the 19th century, despite the widespread popularity of beer and wine, almost nothing is known about the scientific process behind these beverages. The consensus view is that a chemical reaction occurs when certain sugar molecules are added to certain liquids, producing alcohol. But Louis Pasteur rejects this theory. He believes that fermentation is essentially a biological process in which yeast, a living microorganism, feeds on the sugar molecules and then converts them into alcohol. Pasteur was ridiculed last year when he published his germ theory of disease, the hypothesis that the world is filled with living microorganisms that every surface, even the air that humans breathe, is teeming with microscopic bacteria, some of which are responsible for illness. Until now, disease in humans has been explained by the theory of spontaneous generation, in which bacteria materializes from oxygen in the air. Pasteur's germ theory will eventually become the accepted explanation for disease, but in 1862, Pasteur is still trying to prove his hypothesis. He hopes that the principles of germ theory could also explain fermentation in beer and wine. And if Pasteur can verify that fermentation is the result of microorganisms and not mere chemical reactions, his germ theory might also finally gain the respect it deserves. So now, as midnight approaches, Pasteur's mind is filled with the mocking taunts of his fellow scientists when he first proposed germ theory. But it's more than professional pride driving Pasteur's research. He has the weight of an entire nation's economic fortunes on his shoulders. Not long ago, the Emperor of France, Napoleon III, requested a meeting with Pasteur to discuss a concerning blight afflicting the nation's wine exports. Spoilage. Crates and crates of French wine were being shipped to Britain, but upon arrival in England, the wine would taste sour and vinegary. Napoleon asked Pasteur to find a solution to the spoilage problem, and Pasteur accepted So this evening, in his laboratory in Paris, Pasteur is conducting an experiment on blood, raising its temperature under a microscope and monitoring the amount of bacteria present. Suddenly, Pasteur lifts his head from the microscope, his eyes wide. The bacteria in the blood sample was killed when heated to a precise temperature. He conducts similar experiments with wine, finding that when warmed to 131 degrees Fahrenheit, the microbes causing the wine to spoil are also killed. It's a eureka moment and worthy of celebration. But Pasteur is a stern and serious man. He maintains scholarly calm as he documents his findings. But even the stoic Pasteur cannot stop his imagination leaping forward, picturing the revolutionary impact his discovery could someday have. 
And three years later, in 1865, after conducting many further experiments, Pasteur patents his discovery, naming the process after himself, pasteurization. The wine industry has adopted the process, and now shipments of French wine to Britain remain fresh and unspoiled. Napoleon III sends Pasteur a personal note of thanks. And while pasteurization will come to revolutionize the wine and beer industries, it won't be until 1886, nearly 20 years later, that a German chemist named Franz von Soxlet will propose the same technique could be applied to milk. Soxlet's suggestion will take years to gain traction in the dairy industry, as many farmers rebel against the addition of costly new elements to the milk production process. Furthermore, scientists and health officials will argue that pasteurized milk is less nutritious than so-called raw milk. This opinion prevails among consumers, too, even when it becomes obvious that raw milk is more likely to carry disease. In the end, it will take the owner of one of America's largest department stores to introduce pasteurization to the milk industry in the United States, single-handedly saving an estimated half a million lives. It's the summer of 1893, 30 years after Louis Pasteur invented pasteurization. A line has formed outside a small wooden kiosk in New York City. Anxious mothers soothe crying children. People jostle to get ahead in line. A sign above the storefront reads, Nathan Strauss Milk Depot. The prices are also listed, four cents a liter, just one cent for a glass. Behind the counter, dairy maids serve the grateful customers who stagger away, clutching overflowing milk churns in each hand. Overseeing this busy operation is a kindly-looking white-haired man in a dark three-piece suit, Nathan Strauss. Nathan is the owner of a Macy's department store on 6th Avenue. As well as being exceptionally wealthy, Nathan is a keen philanthropist, and there's one cause he's championed above all others, providing clean, safe milk to the children of America. Ever since the swill milk scandal in New York in the 1850s, when contaminated milk was sold under the misnomer pure country milk, health issues surrounding fresh dairy products have persisted. When a cow on Nathan Strauss's upstate farm died from bovine tuberculosis, Nathan realized the danger of raw milk. In 1892, he opened a laboratory in Philadelphia to conduct research into pasteurization, the process of heating milk to kill dangerous microorganisms invented by Louis Pasteur 30 years prior. Then in 1893, Nathan opens his first milk depot in New York, selling pasteurized milk to the masses. Soon, Nathan opens dozens more, catering to the poorest parts of the city. In 1891, 24% of infants in New York die before the age of one. But of the 20,000 children fed on Nathan Strauss's pasteurized milk, only six died prematurely. And then in 1898, following the success of his depots, Nathan is appointed the head of the New York City Board of Health. From that position, Nathan promotes the use of pasteurization across the entire country. But still, Nathan faces resistance. Dairy farmers resent being forced to acquire costly new pasteurization equipment. Even some health experts question the benefits of pasteurized milk. The American Pediatric Society, for instance, warns that feeding babies pasteurized milk could give them scurvy. But Nathan persists. At his own expense, he opens 297 milk stations across 36 cities. In Chicago, with infant mortality rates down by 50%, the city passes America's first mandatory pasteurization laws in 1908. New York City follows suit in 1914. The impact of pasteurization is immense. The national death rate for children in 1891 was 125 per thousand. 
1925, that figure falls to less than 16 per thousand. Still, it won't be until 1924 that pasteurization becomes a recommended federal policy in the United States. Even today, almost 120 years after Nathan Strauss opened his first milk depot, a debate still rages over the relative merits of pasteurized versus raw milk. Still, there is no doubt the process has saved countless lives thanks to the diligence of scientists and health advocates like Dr. Charles North, Frank Leslie, Franz von Soxlet, Nathan Strauss, and perhaps most importantly, Louis Pasteur, who invented pasteurization on April 20th, 1862. Next on History Daily, April 21st, 1934, the Daily Mail publishes an alleged photo of the so-called Loch Ness Monster, sparking an international sensation around one of the world's most enduring modern legends. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily, hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing and sound design by Molly Bond. Music by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by Joe Viner. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship, Pascal Hughes for Noiser.